Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. And today I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Hey, Bill. Good to be here, as always. And Bill, as you may know, I'm a family man, and a big part of taking care of young kids is dealing with meals and mealtime and food likes and food dislikes, coming up with interesting meals, even when your daughter says, and this is an actual quote, I don't know what I want. Do, what do humans eat again? You know, these are your people. These are my people. It gets me wondering what do humans eat and why? Like, where, where do all these smells and tastes come from? Why do we like some of them? Why do we hate some of them? And I'm starting to think, Bill, I sense an episode topic happening. You have once again, Corey, crystallized my thoughts. Today, our guest is Dr. Pia Sorensen. She's a senior preceptor, that's a fancy word for teacher in chemical engineering and applied materials at Harvard University and co-author of the book Science and Cooking, a companion to a course she teaches with the same name. Dr. Pia Sorensen, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Pia? Yes, you may. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. Did you grow up cooking a lot? Did your family cook? I grew up uh, cooking some and being surrounded by people who cooked a lot. Um, and this was in Sweden. This was in Sweden. This was in southern Sweden. And I was lucky to be surrounded by uh, women, my mom and grandmother, who cooked amazing things all the time. And I spent a lot of time on a family farm where every fall we had the, tr- the tradition of slaughtering the chickens. And the entire family was involved in this. The Men were out in the shed chopping off the heads of the chickens, and the women were carving out the innards in another shed, and and the kids were running between these two sheds with the chickens hanging 
from their feet. Now, were and, you directly then- <laughs> involved with slaughter? Because I, I've I've slaughtered a chicken, and it's it's harder than it looks. Yeah, yeah. I I never got old enough. I never graduated beyond running with that chopped off chicken head <laughs> okay. uh, between the sheds. <laughs> and so, what was the cuisine? I mean, is there is there a regional cuisine of you know, of Southern Sweden that's different? Because I think, you know, Americans, their image of Scandinavian cuisine pretty much begins and ends with what you get at Ikea. <laughs> well, my grandmother did make amazing meatballs for what it's worth. So so there's something to the meatball stereotype for sure. I grew up in, I mean, I came of age in Seattle and uh, there's just all sorts of fish. My goodness, is there are all kinds of Scandinavian fish. But we'll get to that. You also had an interest in science. I, you must have. I did. I I loved as a kid. I loved everything that had to do with nature and anything outdoorsy, and I still do. But that is what led me to science, and science was eventually what led me to food again. So it 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 connects back. So you took uh, molecular biology and biochemistry into food. That's correct. So I spent a lot of my training doing what I'm sure a lot of listeners on this show are familiar with, which is the kind of typical lab research of pipetting and synthesizing molecules and testing if those molecules do things to cells under microscopes and so on. And a big part of being involved in research is teaching and From there, I started to realize what a terrific tool food is and cooking is to draw people in. It's like you said, Corey, we all have to eat. And sometimes that's more exciting than other times. Um, but, but, (laughs) but for most people, if you, if you feed them something really good, they will be excited and maybe they will even be excited enough that they start to wonder, hmm. How did it work this time? And why not last time? And what is the science that that happened there? And so on. I've got to get that recipe from you. That's a, <laughs> right. that's a big one. Right. So, so how did it become a course? And how did that work out? So the course um, started with uh, Michael Browner and David Waits at Harvard. Michael is an applied mathematician. Dave is a physicist. My background is in chemistry and biology, and the two of them started the course, and I came on um, later as the biologist and chemist. And we've been teaching the course together now for, it's been 10 years. So the book is really sort of a culmination of 10 years of just being completely thinking about this sometimes too Thinking much. about <laughs> the science of food. So <laughs> when I was young, somebody who was really into food was called a gourmet. Nowadays, we say foodie. Are you a foodie? I'm afraid I am. Yes. Well, I wouldn't be afraid of that. I would embrace it. <laughs> Write a book, maybe teach a course or something. <laughs> Food has a way of taking over. It's really taken over my life. And now I, I think about it all the time. So I think I would fall in that category. Well, in your class, is there experimentation? Are they doing weird things in their homework? What happens? Right. So what everyone does, there is obviously typical um, reading and lecturing, but there is also big part of the class is a hands-on laboratory where we have a cooking lab, students go into the lab, they cook various things and they experiment with it. And one of our favorite labs, I would say, is cooking molten chocolate cake, where the whole idea of heat transfer and how quickly heat transfers into food is important. You don't want it to transfer too far, then the molten chocolate cake gets overcooked and is no longer molten, right? But if you don't cook it at all, then it's all a molten mess. So you want to really precisely understand heat diffusion. 
Um, and you can you can understand it from from just cooking that you can get by measuring how thick the the crumb is that has cooked. You can actually use that to estimate what the diffusion coefficient of heat mm-hmm. is in nice. water. And the reason is food is mostly water, right? So you can then go and look in the literature and say, wow, look, we did this with a molten chocolate cake. So there's an old saying, which I stand by, I admit, cooking is art, baking is, a, is science. Do you agree with that concept? Or is it all science? I, I agree with it in broad terms, yes. And then I think there are probably some, some cousins in each where if you really want to cook a sous vide egg, for example, which is no longer baking, then you want to cook it at a very precise temperature within like one degree Celsius. And then I think we're merging into understanding the science. For the purposes of uh, educating our readers, what is that perfect temperature for the egg? Well, I think so. I think it depends on your preferences a little bit, but but somewhere around 63, 64, 65. And if you do these eggs a lot, then you can tell exactly if it's 64 or 65. So, but does it, what are we doing in this case? Are we, I mean, boiling is 100 Celsius. So this is a temperature, it's a bath that is not boiling, but it's heated to right at 65 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. say. And then what happens? And you put your egg in and you keep it there for long enough so that it, the heat has time to, to really diffuse through. Uh, whereas when you boil an egg, right, you do it for a few minutes and you're done because you don't want all that 100 degree to go to the inside. No. Yeah. Um, and so by doing that, you get an egg where it's 65 degrees on the entire inside. So and this is a soft boiled egg. Yeah, right, right. But exactly. a perfect soft boiled egg. Speaking of temperature, I would like to go to a voicemail from a guy who works here at Stitcher Midroll on his own podcast, which is all about food. Let's roll that voicemail. Hey, Bill. This is Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast. Hope you're doing well. I love ice cream. And when I take ice cream out of the freezer, I usually want to eat it as soon as possible. Uh, problem is, I know that ice cream tastes better when it's a little melty. It has more flavor and aroma that way, when it's not quite so ice cold. Now, I will admit that I sometimes pop the whole pint in the microwave. But I know that that kind of isn't great for the ice cream that I don't end up eating immediately. What is a better way for me to soften and bring closer to room temperature my ice cream quickly? I know I could wait but that's not really an option for me because I want my ice cream now. What is a better way for me to bring my ice cream closer to room temperature quickly without doing molecular damage to it in the process? Thank you. <laughs> Nobody that's said this show would be easy. a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, I have to say that I agree. I also prefer to have my ice cream just slightly melted and if this were something where you made your ice cream from scratch yourself, you could play with it by having additives. So you, if you increase the sugar concentration in the ice cream or if you even add a little bit of, of, um, of alcohol to it, then it will be more, it'll be softer in the, in the freezer to begin with. So you may be able to take it out and maybe it'll be right at it. But that's if you make your ice cream from scratch. If As you, you should, don't, presumably. 
I wonder, I haven't tried this, but the immediate thing that comes to mind is, could you put it in some water bath? Um, We we just talked about the water baths with the eggs. What if you just put it in a sort of room temperature water bath? It's temperature versus time, right? And in your book, you got a whole thing about time, temperature, volume, and heat as an ingredient. In other words, you you measure heat as precisely as you'd measure all the other things. That's correct. And it's the ingredient that often makes it all gel and come together. Yeah. So Pia, is there a, is there a temperature that you keep your own ice cream so that you have your perfect ice cream the same way you'd have a perfect egg? No, there isn't. There isn't. I feel like I should, though. I should experiment with ice cream for sure. So, well, yeah. how about this? You know, people have wine coolers. Should there be your own a separate refrigerator for the ice cream? So you'd have it very cold. Then the night before, you'd put one pint in the ice cream, not quite as cold, cooler. And then this leads us, of course, to the role of microwaves in the whole world of cooking. How do you feel about microwaves, Pia? I think they're quite cool. I think it's amazing that they work and how they work. It's the polar nature of molecules, right? Of water. Yeah, yeah. They're incredibly smart. Um, they, you know, a microwave essentially has a transmitter that sends out an electromagnetic field, and the direction of that field keeps changing. So, like billion times per second, and each time the water molecules, which are sort of slightly charged, not completely, but slightly, each time they align themselves with this field. And each time it switches, they go back and forth and switch back and forth. Yeah, they rub against each other. Yeah. It's as if by magic. Right, which is essentially what temperature is, right? Molecules moving. And then they make all the other molecules move in the food. So it's it's just incredibly smart. Okay, Pia, I, I want your assessment. I am a big fan of making a poached egg in the microwave. You put a half cup of water in a Pyrex or glass dish. You put the egg in gently. You microwave it at 1,200 watts for 45 seconds, and you get quite a nice poached egg. Is this a smart application of modern technology? I think that's beautiful. Okay. The fact that you make it work <laughs> is terrific. And I think what what's so cool there is that an egg, so the, so the electromagnetic radiation only goes about an inch. But of course, an egg is only about that thick when you when you crack it out. So one of the reasons it works so well is probably that. Pia, with this said, my people were French, and we had a lot of well, we had from time to time poached eggs, and a key to it is vinegar. Mm. You put the tiniest bit, the schminkiest schmink of mm. vinegar, in the boiling water, and it and helps the egg coagulate. Mm. There's something going on there, right? Yeah. Is it your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your proteins, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, so, so vinegar is quite acidic, right? Um, has a pH of, of, I don't know, one and a half or two. Water is seven. And low pH denatures proteins. It kind of cooks them. And you know this if you've ever cooked or eaten ceviche, which is the raw fish that is marinated in lime juice, and then the, the lime juice kind of cooks the raw fish. It changes the texture slightly and, and makes it um, changes the color often. And vinegar, it, the same thing would happen to the fish when you do it with vinegar. Just like fish, eggs are made of proteins, right? So when you add just that little bit of vinegar in there, you're going to sort of slightly 
help cook the proteins. And what's so beautiful is that the heat in the water that you're that you're poaching the egg in is doing the same thing, but together they kind of do it a little bit faster than each of them would do on their own. Another beautiful example of this is if you ever made ricotta cheese at home, you would heat the milk, not quite to boiling, but just below, add a little bit of vinegar, but you can't add too much vinegar because it's not going to be delicious cheese. So, but just a hint, and those two together makes the milk coagulate. You scoop out the curds, you sort of, that's, and that's your, your fresh ricotta. So we're denaturing proteins. We're knocking exactly. proteins apart, yeah. both with heat and acid. What actually happens when you denature a protein? Are you kind of unraveling the molecule? What's going on? Yeah, that's correct. So, so proteins are carefully, carefully folded up into very specific structures. And those structures are necessary so that the proteins can do whatever they do in the cell or in the body or, or so. When you heat them, they start to jiggle around and move from the heat and that's enough to break some of the bonds that hold it together. So they sort of unravel into these um, long, long strands that can then kind of reattach and re-coagulate with each other. And this is what you see. I, what's so, I think what's so cool with the science of food is that that science that I'm telling you about are things that you can then actually see. Like you see it. This is... You don't see the actual molecules and so on, but but you see the effect of them. And so you can tell what's happening. Yeah. So what you're doing to the proteins when you're cooking with heat and what you're doing to the proteins when you're curing them or cooking them with an acid is actually chemically the same? There actually is sort of the, the you're kind of doing the same basic process? Right. They're, so they're very similar with the heat just like I said, you're, as the heat increases, they move around and that breaks bonds and they fall apart. And it's sort of the falling apart. And it doesn't really matter so much how they fall apart. It's the fact that they fall apart. The acid does something similar in the sense that acid vinegar or lime juice or lemon juice have tons of protons. They're positively charged. So you're basically dumping all these positive charges onto the protein and the protein has been carefully sort of folded up to account for all of the positive and negative charges that the amino acids have. So plus has become close to minus and pluses are far apart. And, and it's all kind of been optimized for this perfect fold. And now you're totally messing with that because you're dumping all these plus charges on it. And the plus charges are going to um, neutralize the minus charges. They're going to make the whole thing too charged. And you know what happens when you have too many plus charges together? They're going to sort of ex- fall apart. And so now this is what happens. It falls repel. apart. Exactly. Repel. Yeah. That's so cool. Stick around for more science rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where 
Every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide, and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Science Rules is back. We have a great question that talks about heat because it has a great phrase in it. Can we roll this question about fats and oils? Hi, uh, my question is why do different fats and oils have different smoke points? So Pia, when if I put fish in lime juice, it doesn't start smoking. No, it shouldn't. But... <laughs> But if I put fish in a pan and get it hot enough, it's pretty likely we're going to get some smoke, whether we want it or not. What? Tell us about a smoke point. First, I feel like we almost have to talk about something that is not an oil, something like water. Because what happens when you heat water is that it's a liquid and then you heat it so much that all this movement of the molecules some of them leave and they turn into gas. Get water vapor. Exactly. Now, imagine you do this with oil. So oil is made of all these fatty acids, and they're different from water in that they're longer molecules. They're much bigger molecules. And they're sort of too big to float up in the air on their own. So what happens instead is they start to break apart and it's the little parts of them that smoke and go into the air. So in other words, with water, liquid water, you get it hot, it turns to a vapor. Yeah. With liquid oil, you get it hot, and the molecules fall apart and become smoke. Yeah. Like they, yeah. So everybody just check this out. It's the mass, it's the weight of the molecules that affects how they behave in a hot pan. That's just cool. So different oils must have different length molecules, so they have different so-called smoke points. Right, so peanut peanut oil is very different than, say, corn oil, and that's because of the the different weights of the molecules in there? That's that's correct. So they have different length of those fatty acids, and usually also there is some difference in how those fatty acids are bonded together. So there can be single bonds or there can be double bonds. And I would think that that combination – determines the temperature at which they would kind of start to break apart and then and then go into smoke. This brings me to the next thing that goes wrong when you get the pan too hot and the oil starts to smoke and the next thing. Can we roll Victoria? Hi, Bill Nye. My name is Victoria, and I was wondering why food sticks to a hot pan. Thank you. Yeah, what's actually happening that makes the food stick? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I have never thought about this. So what I would think is that what makes things not stick is when they're, the thing you put on produces some steam, which kind of makes a little cushion between the pan and the food itself. In this case, it also depends on the food. So if you have, obviously, if you've oiled the pan, then the oil is liquid and it, you decrease the risk that things will stick. But but I think there could also be this thing of the steam evaporating as you heat it and that forming sort of a cushion. So what I'm thinking of here is, you know, when you throw a little water onto a stovetop 
and it'll kind mm-hmm. of purl around. Oh, you dance get, you around. Get the dancing yep. drops, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the same thing happens if you pour liquid nitrogen into room temperature. and it's Which temp- we all do. Which we <laughs> all do. It's a big part of my cooking. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised. Um, no, well, Pia, I got some, some disclosure. The very first Bill Nye the Science Guy segment on television was the household uses of liquid nitrogen. The premise, the comedy premise being, we've all got liquid nitrogen, so here's what we do with it. And the payoff, as I'm sure you knew, was you roast marshmallows in liquid nitrogen, you chew them, and steam comes out of your nose, which is just are you Are you good at getting a really good dry? <laughs> yeah, you breath? can put in the time. I put in the time, put in the hours on. <laughs> and yeah, you can burn your tongue. But when the audience goes wild, a t- burned tongue it's worth it, huh? is well worth it. So anyway, here we are. We got dancing water droplets. We got dancing liquid nitrogen because they form a layer of gas around the droplet. Take it. So that's when it doesn't stick. And, and of course, the question was, when, when does it stick? Well, here, let me, let me ask a question. I'm thinking about just what you were saying before. You have the, like, these oil or fatty molecules breaking up, or you have these proteins denaturing and sticking together in new ways. Are these things sticking together and clumping together? Is that part of the sticking process of why you, know, you sear a steak and some of the fat from the steak sticks to the pan, or you bake a muffin and some of the starches or proteins from the muffin stick to your muffin tin? Is that, maybe that's what's going on? Right, right. So, so that by the very cooking process, you're kind of making sticky materials. That's what I'm wondering. Um, that mm-hmm. that are like a molten cheese is is just by nature stickier than the, than the hard cheese. I think that's part of it. Yeah, and then it's going to depend on the surface that you cook it on. I could imagine that if that surface is uh, has space for sort of little places to grip onto, if it's slightly rough surface. Maybe you get more stickiness, whereas if you don't, such as with a Teflon pan, maybe you would get less of it. We have uh, another voicemail. Is Robert out there? Can we roll Robert? Hi, Bill. It's Robert. I was just wondering, why does chicken need to be cooked to 165 and all other meat is cooked to 145? Thanks. It has to do with bacteria, right, that are right, right, right. The thing that happens when you cook things, right, is that that microbes die off. And the hard, some of the hardest to kill microbes are the, the salmonella, the listeria, the E. coli. And you want to really make sure that you cook things for long enough so that those numbers decrease. So there is a, a, a rule called the 6.5 log rule from the USDA, which is the rule that has basically calculated out how quickly do these, these uh, microbes die at different temperatures and how long do you then have to cook them at that temperature for them to be decreased by that much? So yeah, that so is when one you of the say things. log, it sounds like there's some logarithm involved. Like right, it never right. goes to zero, but it goes so arbitrarily near zero that it's not. Yeah, six orders of magnitude is a body. lot of orders of magnitude. Yeah. How does heat kill bacteria? Um, they blow up the micro, the, the proteins. So what makes cells work, what makes you work is your proteins and that they are perfectly folded, just like we talked about, so that they can do all the things that your cells require them to do. And even if you just denature them a little bit, if you were to cook an egg sous vide, you would notice already at 
like 55 degrees Celsius or so, you would start to see it changing, which means that the proteins are changing, which means that they are no longer functional. So whatever life they supported is no longer is no longer living. So yeah, the bacteria, they just leak through their own membranes. Right. <laughs> so I want to follow up on, on another aspect of Robert's question, though. The reason we treat chicken and beef differently is not just because of health reasons. A raw steak sounds really exciting. Raw chicken is disgusting. Why? What's the, <laughs> what's the difference there? Is this a, a peculiar human aesthetic preference? Or is there something really chemically different about these two types of meat? Yeah, right. But I, I'm thinking about that. I th- I would think that at least some of it is cultural. I, I think it's fair to assume that at, at least some of it just is what, what we grew up with. So I think the question is, is it more than that? My sense there too is that perhaps there is. I wonder if there's something with this sort of umami... Oh, what's umami? What's umami? Flavor molecules. Umami is the fifth taste, right? So sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and then umami. And that's the meatiness. Um, it's, it kind of has a, it's, it's much harder to pinpoint than the other, salty and sour, but it kind of has a meatiness to it, a savoriness. It's the, it's the savoriness that you have in meat, you have it in Parmesan cheese, um, you have it in tomatoes. Um, and I think beef. There may be something about the flavor molecules that gives a sort of richer, richer flavor experience in general. When was umami, when did it, it it emerged in my lifetime? Nobody ever talked about umami when I was growing up. Yeah, it it has emerged. I I don't know when they decided for sure to accept it. It's it's been around as a hypothetical for, for longer than that. And now there are various thoughts that there may be further tastes. So the next one up could potentially be something called kokumi, which um, is similarly hard to pinpoint, uh, but it has something to do with a kind of mouthfulness. And the idea is that it would come from very, very short protein segments, so little peptides of just one or two or three or maybe four amino acids. And it would lead to a kind of mouthfulness in, in foods and things like miso or cheese or so. Talk to us. You have in your book, there's stuff about, some people call it mouthfeel, aroma molecules versus texture molecule. The texture molecules are kind of the big molecules that give food its, its, um, its mouthfeel. mouthfeel. It's, it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's the material. It's, it's what you tear apart with your teeth and what you have to chew down or what melts in your mouth. And, so that sort of determines that. how slippery it is in your mouth and how hard it is to chew through it, those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's so that's that's all coming back down to the, the molecular structure. It does, and it's a very broad subject. It's hard to pinpoint what makes something slippery as opposed to whatever else. Like it, 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 it's hard, but but there are sort of some overarching principles I think that kind of govern it. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's pretty tricky. How much is all of this affected our perception of food by how hungry we are? I think it's very tied. I think our experience of flavor in general, and you're now saying sort of the food generally, but if we even just think about flavor, again, there are all kinds of principles that apply to all of us. And then there's a lot of variation in terms of your cultural background, what you ate growing up, how old you are, our our sense of detecting flavor kind of tends to diminish as we grow older. So, So there's a lot of subjectivity there. 
I will say, though, universally, everybody likes two things, fat and salt. And that's the success of the potato chip. And in the case of potato chips, mouthfeel or texture is oh so very important. I want to ask about salt. Can we roll that voicemail by Abigail? Hi, my name is Abigail, and I've got a question about food and cooking. I want to know how does salt work and seasoning your food? Like, does the salt do something to the food, or does it do something to our taste buds? Thanks. Mm. Chemistry in food or chemistry of tongue? <laughs> right, I mean, salt is such a simple molecule compared to all these complicated proteins and aroma molecules, but damn, does it taste good. Yeah, and it, it tends to enhance other flavors and kind of balance them out. And so, so we do detect it on our tongue. Um, it, it's one of the five tastes and the, the sodium chloride, which is table salt, we detected there are receptors for it that basically send the signal to your brain that salt. So it does things to food too. So it depends on the context where you add it. So certainly I think it does a lot to flavor and balancing things out. And this tends to be the case with the, those five tastes in general, is that they tend to really play off each other. So if you've ever had, this is something I sometimes do with my students, where if you serve someone a quite sweet drink, it has a fair amount of sugar in there, and you're like, here, drink it. And they're like, oh, that was sweet. You pour a little, it can be vinegar or lemon juice in there, and you kind of get to a point where, where people start to say, wait, this isn't so bad. This is almost like apple juice, which is very similar to how Coca-Cola is. Like it's sort of sugar and acidity together and some other stuff. It's magical, um, man. You just can't beat a Coca-Cola. <laughs> now, those people out there who prefer Pepsi, that's fine. I get it. It's the same idea. It's a great, it's just, there's nothing better. All right. So along that line, sugar... What is aspartame? What is artificial sugar? What goes on there? Mm. Well, I think simply speaking, it is something that binds to our taste buds in a similar way that sugar would. So it sends that signal to your brain that says, ah, sweet. And then it doesn't have the calories that, that people try to avoid. So uh, it's a classic science teacher demonstration, everybody. You get a regular Coca-Cola or regular soft drink and a the same soft drink in the diet form and you don't have to, in a can you don't have to open the can you can use it over and over you get an aquarium or some tub of water you drop the regular soda can in the water and it sinks you drop the aspartame or uh, artificial sweetener uh soda uh, in the and it floats and I guess people have tried to, talking about the combination of flavors and how do you figure, how do you calibrate all this? My recollection is aspartame is believed to be 160 times sweeter than sugar. So there's 160th as much powder in the artificial can as in the regular can. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right. Now, speaking of Sweden and fish. And my years and years in Seattle. Yeah. Did you grow up eating lutefisk? I did. What the heck is lutefisk? <laughs> lutefisk is a holiday food that is uh, common. It's a traditional holiday food. And it's one of those foods that have kind of survived 
people sometimes talk about that the things we eat around the holidays are the things with more history because it's the thing that you keep returning to. Um, it's one of those foods. It's made from fish. It's made from sun-dried ling or cod, uh, which has then, you, you basically preserve it by drying it out. And then before cooking it, it's so dry that you have to do something with it. And so you put it into an alkaline solution. So alkaline. You so, put it in uh, what? You put it in Drano. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> it has the pH of that. It's it has a pH such that you have to really protect yourself. You have to wear gloves um, because yeah, it, so it can burn. When I you. worked on this comedy show in Seattle, we had countless jokes about lutefisk. And just you talk about an acquired taste. Man, oh man. <laughs> so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, acquired taste and acquired texture, because what happens then is you wash out the lye, you put it in water, you have to then change the water many times. And what happens over time is that just like we talked about how the acid uh, can kind of cook ceviche because it has uh, so many positively charged ions, lye is kind of the opposite, right? It has um, many negatively charged ions, and that messes with proteins too. It kind of denatures them and picks them apart. So, so if you think of a fish and the texture that a fish normally has, what happens with lutefish is that um, the proteins are kind of denatured and, and the, the whole thing kind of turns into a gel. It is sort of <laughs> fish jello, um, which it is, is just okay. not at so all. For those of expect. us who've never had it, what is that flavor and what is that texture like when you actually eat it? Well, the texture, actually, I think, once you get used to it, is fine. It's just like a softer fish. It's just not what you expect. It's um, once you get used to it. That's the charm. <laughs> that's what made it go on the comedy show. But do you put it on toast or crackers kind of stuff? No, so you eat it with boiled potatoes and then um, some kind of sauce. It depends on where you're from, what, what kind of sauce you have. In my kind of the country, my part of the country, we have mustard sauce. In other parts, you have a molten butter um, you often have peas with it. So th that's kind of what I ate when I was a kid. And what is the flavor that emerges at the end of that process? Well, Bill, I'm curious to hear your... <laughs> well, the thing that always... It reminds me, it's um, salty. It's uh, a salty fish gel. And the potatoes cut it. That is to say, you want to have the potato with it because it's so strong. You want the potatoes and the sauce with it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, it also uh, has a kind of soapy flavor. Soap, that's yeah, excellent. Yeah, yes, soap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's for everyone. The culture that enjoys it reminds me of the people that think Vegemite is good. You grow up with it, you put the tiniest scraping little scratchy scratch of Vegemite on toast, and you think it is somehow enhanced. Uh, maybe it is if you grow up with it. It's also it's making a, me think this, of, uh, from my own culture, gefilte fish is a real dividing point between people who grew up with it and people who are utterly appalled by it. <laughs> right. Science Rules will be right back. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Science Rules. You worked with recipes that were written in Babylon. You've worked with Babylonian recipe tablets. Is that right? What was that about? That's right. Well, my research has kind of become anything that is at the intersection of food and science and, and then any other field that is connected to that. So this is a collaboration I have with an Assyriologist. And so we're a team of historians and gastronomists um, who have been studying these tablets. And so these recipes occur on stone tablets, clay tablets. Um, They're 4,000 years old, were found in southern Babylonia, and they're now housed in the Yale Babylonian collection. But, But Where is southern Babylonia now? On a map, it is along the Euphrates River. So, so be what southern Iraq? Yeah. So it's Mesopotamia. That's correct. Yes. So these are the oldest reci- human recipes we have, four thousand years old, and we have been working on trying to recreate these recipes basically by cooking them. Now, this is not usually how sort of his, history research is done, right? But but our, our thinking is that cooking is really an experimental science. And in order to really understand them, you, you have to kind of cook these recipes and see what happens. They're difficult to cook because there's all kinds of information that is left out. So what's one that you've tried that worked? What's one that you tried that didn't work? Well, I think the best one is a, a dish called tuhu, which is a stew. The, the, these tablets have a lot of stews on them. Um, this is a stew which have red beet and lamb and various other spices, a lot of onion and garlic. turns out that there's in general a lot of onion and garlic and those kinds of onion family um, herbs and spices included in these dishes. And um, it's delicious. It's kind of has a lamby flavor. Um, well, this sounds like this is literally the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, this is just four thousand years. It sounds ago. very similar to the foods in that region of the world today. That that was very persistent. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And they're working with the plants and uh, stuff that was available. Right. So so that's the trick there. That's one of the challenges with these recipes. So quite apart from the fact that they never tell you how much you add of each of the ingredients, Ooh. Uh. You, <laughs> that, that's, some, that's kind of implied, which is a common thing in historical recipes in general. No list of how much, how much of each. And then there is the challenge of actually interpreting what the various words, not just sometimes directly what they mean, but also what do they really refer to? What what kind of plant is that? If the plant doesn't grow anymore, um, or, or if it does still grow in the region, you can make some educated guesses, but maybe you don't know for sure. So this is why cooking these recipes is so 
important. And we've run into a few places where you think that something is a specific ingredient and you add it and it turns out it adds so much bitterness that the thing becomes inedible. Corey, Bill, did you hear that? Yeah, that's not the sound of food. That's the sound of thunder. Thunder? It means that it's time for the lightning round in which Bill will ask you lightning fast questions. And if you're game, you will give lightning fast answers. Okay. You ready? Here we go. What is the Maillard reaction? How is it different from caramelization? Caramelization is the breaking down of sugars from heat. And the Maillard reaction is the breaking down of proteins as they react with sugars from heat, quite high heat. It needs to be at least 120, 160 degrees Celsius, so way above boiling. So this is how we get bread crust? Yeah. And this is how we get uh, caramelized? Crust on steak, bread crust, yep. Okay. If you give an assignment to your students, what's the hardest one? What's the hardest cooking assignment? Is there an easy one? Well, we start the semester by cooking pasta. And trying to assess all the myths involved in cooking pasta. How much water do you use? Do you salt the water before? Do you add a little bit of olive oil? Which one do you want to debunk? Do you add the salt first or later? Well, I just add a little salt. The the issue there is that some people think it does something to the boiling point, and it doesn't. You, You are not adding enough salt for that to happen. Well, if it's superheated and you add sharp crystals, it would start to boil. But that's not going to change the temperature. Correct. Right. There we go. Yeah. Okay. What's more difficult, professional scientist, that's easy enough, or professional chef? Oh, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that there is some overlap between the two. And this is something that we often see in the course in in that you part of the training process is that you go and you work with the the skilled people of your day and you learn from them. And then eventually you open your own little thing which maybe then grows, especially in in these very experimental chefs that there is a lot of sort of trial and error, figuring things out, things failing. Occasionally they work, um, but there's a lot of trial and erroring and sort of getting to things that that work. You need to get funding for whatever it is. You need to have people interested in what what <laughs> what, <laughs> what you're, you're trying to put out there, what you're cooking up. Um, yeah, once you, in a while you go to a restaurant, back when we could go to restaurants, and they bring out a dish and you go, well... Uh, well, not really, no. <laughs> yeah, you, do, you right. do need a certain level of consensus before you realize you know, what, what makes sense. Is there the most interesting cuisine, most interesting food? Let's do that. Well, I, I love fermentation. So, so I'm fascinated by things like sauerkraut, uh, which is so simple on the surface of it. You just take cabbage and, and a little bit of salt. There's the salt again. And in this case, it does more than just add flavor. It actually draws out water from the cabbage and it makes the correct microbes grow and keeps keeps it fermenting in the right direction. And then you add the last ingredient, which is essentially thyme, right? Clock ticking. And you wait long enough and then it just sort of miraculously cooks on its own. Um, but of course, it wasn't as simple as it as it looked. There was a very delicate balance there. That's an example of the sour food going so well with the rich fat of the uh, sausage, the kielbasa, what have you. Yes. Let's say you had 30 seconds. What is the most important thing you want your students to come away from the course with? The fact that asking questions 
about their food, but also just about the world around them, will lead not only to answers, but also to them having a richer appreciation and understanding, not only of the food, but of the world around them. Wow. That's great. <laughs> hear, hear. Thank you. Thank you so awesome. much, Pia, for taking the time <laughs> yes. to talk with us today about the science of cooking. Thank you, guys. This was awesome. Our guest today has been Dr. Pia Sorensen. She's a professor of chemical engineering at Harvard University, where she teaches the science and cooking course that inspired the book of the same name. Uh, it's a book you can get wherever you get books. Now, I've seen the book. I've got it on order, but I bet there are 20 in a carton. They make great gifts. Remember, when it comes to understanding how to make food delicious, Corey. Bill, science, science rules. Now, if you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us learn what people want to learn about. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Margarano is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, Science, Science Rules. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.